1: On Wednesday, I did a Zoom call with Yana Peshayeva. She's a journalist in Moscow and she happens to be a former intern for Slate. How are you? Are you doing okay?
2: I don't know, I'm really frustrated like every day we have a um, new bunch of news about companies uh, leaving and um, life is getting like less and less comfortable and we can't withdraw dollars anymore, and our currency is just turning into papers. People are leaving the country, and other people are thinking, should we also leave? Yeah, so it's just anxious.
1: Yana found out about the invasion of Ukraine when she woke up to a bunch of early morning text messages
2: from friends overseas. I went immediately on social media. My whole Facebook, was full of uh, posts um, of people who were frustrated, depressed. They were crying and expressing their disappointment, uh, helplessness. And then I went on media platforms and um, there were those horrible footages of some buildings, uh, bombed fires, shelling, I wanted Yana to
1: give me a sense of what it's like to try to get on the Internet in Russia now and get information, what you can see and what you can't. How have you been able to keep up with what's happening? Like, where do you where do you check to get your news and how much have you noticed the the change in the information over the past week or so?
2: The change was dramatic. So right now, Facebook um, is blocked. Sometimes it works, but it works poorly. Instagram also uh, works with glitches. Uh, Sometimes you don't receive messages that people send you. You receive them like eight hours after. I used to get uh, my information uh, from uh, independent media. And right now it is not available at all. Because Russian authorities blocked it.
1: Blocked it because Russia is tightening its grip on the Internet every day. Censorship laws are getting stricter. The pockets of digital resistance to the Kremlin are being eliminated. Western companies are leaving or their services are throttled.
2: You just feel like you are getting cut off all the services. Netflix left Russia. Apple Pay, Google
1: Pay... They're small things, Yana says, but they're emblematic of something much bigger. Vladimir Putin has always regarded the internet with suspicion. And with the war in Ukraine, he sees an opening. Today on the show, how Putin wants to wall off Russia from the rest of the digital world. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. To understand why this moment feels precarious, not just for Russians, but for the global Internet, we need to go back in time, back to the start of the century when Putin first came to power, so we can see how his thinking about the Internet has evolved. I called up Justin Sherman, a fellow at the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative, to walk me through it.
0: Vladimir Putin sees the Internet both as a threat to regime security— and a weapon to be used against Russia's enemies. But this view was not always there. There was concern among some members of the Russian security apparatus around 2000 that the information spread on the internet could threaten the regime, but it really took the next decade, decade and a half, for Putin and and really the top decision makers to start paying attention to this internet phenomenon.
1: I'm thinking a little bit about the the early 2000s. The early 2000s are marked by these color revolutions in in former uh, Soviet countries, including Ukraine. You know, we're talking 2003, 2004, 2005. Did technology start to play a role at all there?
0: Technology did not have a huge role uh, in those early color revolutions. But This thread is really, really important for understanding how we got and how Putin got to where uh, we are today, which is that did send fear rippling through the Kremlin about Russia losing influence over former Soviet republics, and also about foreign governments toppling uh, regimes that are close to the Kremlin um, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that he's a very conspiratorial and paranoid person, Vladimir Putin doesn't see opposition movements as legitimate. He doesn't see people protesting on the street, whether that's in St. Petersburg or in Kiev, and think, oh, these are people who have their own thoughts and their own desires and are you know, mobilizing out of frustration or what have you. He looks and instead says, there must be some foreign plot here where a government is orchestrating this behind the scenes. And so the Internet role in those early ones was, was minimal, but that really did uh, explode that fear in the Kremlin's head that other states, other mysterious forces were at play trying to reduce Russia's influence over surrounding countries.
1: In 2008, the Kremlin's fears began to be realized. In August of that year, Russian forces invaded Georgia. The conflict itself only lasted five days, but it marked a turning point in Russia's ability, or perhaps its inability, to control information and the narrative around what was happening.
0: You had that gap, right, between what people were seeing on television, which is near totally controlled by the Russian government by that point, and what they were seeing on the internet, which was not really that filtered and was pretty open in Russia at the time. And so people easily could go on sites That were up in Georgia and say, oh, well, the Kremlin says there weren't any casualties, let's say, in this recent uh, shooting match. And yet, here, this website says the Georgians killed a bunch of Russian soldiers. So that uh, freaked out a bunch of Russian officials and worried a bunch of Russian officials. That also led to a bunch of uh, DDoS attacks against websites in Georgia to try and take those sources off the internet. So That really uh, made people sit up and pay attention and say, hey, you know, even in a a traditional armed conflict, we have to pay a lot more attention to this internet thing.
1: By the time the Arab Spring starts to unfold, I think a lot of people in the West and certainly technology companies are seeing the internet as a force for good and a force for openness, even if it, as we know now, is short-lived how did the Kremlin see it?
0: The Kremlin saw it very, very differently. You had a combination of that color revolution fear from the early 2000s saying there's no way these protests are organic. And then you overlapped that with the role of the internet and mobilization and the degree to which Western governments were hyping up the internet and the Arab Spring. And coming away from that Putin and the Kremlin really started to think that the internet was a tool of Western power projection and started to look at things like Hillary Clinton's 2010 internet freedom speech. And instead of viewing that as a policymaker commenting on an internet that's largely outside state control, saw it as the US government talking about how the internet can be used to you know, topple unfriendly regimes.
1: Countries that restrict free access to information or violate the basic rights of Internet users risk walling themselves off from the progress of the next century. There is this striking quote from Putin in 2014 that the Internet is a CIA project.
0: Yeah, I mean, so first of all, if if Putin is in our tech history class, he's going to get knocked a few points for not saying it was the Defense Department. But um, (laughs) no, but but in all seriousness, right? I mean, this is the thing is, is it's easy to dismiss that as propaganda, right? To say, that's ridiculous. He can't literally think that the US government controls the internet and controls every tech company. Certainly policymakers here would laugh at the thought that they control social media. But Putin very much was serious when he said that. Uh, The Arab Spring, as we talked about, had just happened and that freaked Putin out. And then 2014 really was the nail in the coffin, which was the maiden revolution in Ukraine. It started as a peaceful protest in one of Europe's busiest capitals. Today it exploded into massive violence and bloodshed, now on the brink of a civil war. At least 70 dead so far and the death toll rising. Should Ukraine have closer- this is right after the Snowden leaks, right, and all this stuff about U.S. government surveillance globally. And then next thing you know, Facebook and Twitter are huge points of mobilization to overthrow the Kremlin-friendly Yanukovych regime in Ukraine. And that statement, I think, is just a snowball product of, of everything Putin had seen up until that point. He, again, did not Think These people were acting of their own volition and so really did believe and expressed at that time that the Internet is a CIA project and that, you know, Western tech companies, too, were arms of the U.S. state trying to further that influence projection.
1: I find this quote so interesting because it feels like something that, as propaganda, has this tiny little grain of maybe not truth but something that feels akin to truth like that the roots of the internet were in an arpanet project in the defense department or that we know from edward snowden that the intelligence agencies were you know sort of deeply involved in trying to access communications and data that it's easy if you're already primed to believe the Russian government, if you're already primed to believe Vladimir Putin, to take a statement like that and say like, oh, well, yeah, maybe he's right. Maybe maybe it is nefarious. And I, I wonder, like, if he had an audience that was willing to go along with that or if other people saw it as such a strange remark.
0: It's such an important question and, and I think a really interesting idea, right, because – of course, of course, they got propaganda value out of that. As you said, there was a ton of blowback ongoing uh, in response to the Snowden leaks. There were people in general around that time saying, we need to rethink U.S. Internet policy. We need to reduce American tech companies' power. Right? There are all these kind of conversations about U.S. writ large control and influence on the Internet. And so there certainly was landing space for that kind of comment. At the same time, though, again, it's just it's just striking that that's what Putin literally thinks. And it's not to the degree we're talking about where someone might say, oh, yeah, I, I read that the NSA spies a lot online, which so does every other government. But nonetheless, um, right, it, it really is in his head, a next level of the actual internet is being weaponized by foreign governments and all of that. But it's also a weapon that Russia can use against its enemies. And when you have this view that the US built and uses the internet to hurt Russia and to hurt other countries, the view in the Kremlin is, if we're using disinformation, if we're cyber attacking you, that's not escalation. We're just doing back to you what we see you doing to us.
1: When we come back, 20 years of internet paranoia comes to a head.
0: Hey everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by... AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show.
1: There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal if they can just go to TikTok.
0: This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts
3: now.
1: As Vladimir Putin sees it, the very architecture of the World Wide Web is threatening, and what he would prefer is a domestic internet, one that could control all information within Russia's borders.
0: In 2014, you had Russian officials talking about building a domestic DNS system, the domain name system that converts website names like Slate.com into IP addresses and saying, we need our own, we want independence from the global web. And there were many people who even scoffed at that idea, is that even possible? But in 2019, the Russians put all of this on paper. Putin signed a law saying, we need to be able to isolate the internet in Russia from the rest of the world at a moment's notice.
1: They have tried to do these these tests where they sort of theoretically disconnect from the rest of the world. Could you walk me through that a little bit?
0: They've talked a bunch about these these tests. Right after the law was signed in May of 2019, there was already a test scheduled for October, which for a country of millions of people uh, is quite ambitious to say in a few months, we're gonna be able to cut off the whole internet and we wanna test the switch. There have been some reports from state media about successful disconnection tests but when you look at the traffic data when you speak to folks there's really no evidence that these tests have been successful um, and so it's possible they were carried out but you know in a very limited way right on state systems but until we see evidence I don't see reason to think why it's been it's been a success so far
1: is there an attempt to create a quote-unquote Russian internet more about blocking and monitoring kind of Western providers and infrastructure, or or is it about creating something that is uniquely Russian?
0: It's both. It's wanting this idea of a Russian internet. Again, thinking the whole global internet is American. We want one that's Russian. We want one where Russian language content can thrive. We want one where the state can control and decide for people what is the best kind of of information and the best kinds of services to have. It is also a desire to have that deeper level of independence from the global web. There are other countries who are very happy to censor the internet, to block websites, to filter traffic, but they're still using global protocols. They're not trying to kick out every Western data server, right, they're happy with filtering that content level. And the Russians, time and time again, talk about going deeper, talk about that DNS, talk about being able to flip a switch and have no data going in and out of Russia.
1: You wrote a a, a piece for Slate, actually, um, back in 2019, that that had this headline: Russia's domestic internet is a threat to the global internet. What is it about this project that is so threatening to the foundational ideas of the internet.
0: Part of it is that Kremlin drive to actually set up a Russian DNS, to set up different Russian protocols and infrastructure than the rest of the world. Not many countries are pushing for that level of isolation. Even the Chinese government, which changes protocols internally and does a ton of filtering, is still pretty reliant on global internet technologies. Even in Iran, where there's a national information network, a domestic intranet that has a lot of state content on it, there still is access to the global internet. There still is dependence on global net systems. So this this Russian government idea that they should do away with all of that dependence, that they should have this separate bottom-up enclave of a Russian internet is really just different than what we're seeing in a lot of different states. And then that matches with what we see internationally, with Russia trying to pass UN proposals and standards proposals and all kinds of things globally to undercut other countries trying to keep the internet as global as possible.
1: Since the invasion of Ukraine, Russia has moved incredibly quickly against Western tech companies and websites either by blocking or throttling them. Many of those companies have pulled out of Russia for the moment. Google suspended advertising. Netflix halted its service. Apple and Microsoft have paused sales. And Internet providers Cogent and Lumen cut service to Russia. Russia also passed a new law that threatens websites and publishers with prison time for, quote, misinformation about Ukraine. Justin says to expect more censorship and isolation in the coming weeks.
0: There are really a bunch of different things to watch here. One is, in past years, the Russian government has tried to block access to things or slow down access to things and has failed. For two years, it tried to block access to Telegram and couldn't do it. There were even senior Russian officials who used Telegram and who would mock other officials in charge of censorship in meetings by pulling out Telegram, um, <laughs> because they were so, which just you know, its own its own interesting scene to picture, but... They, they were so ineffective at trying to block it that they gave up and, and undid the ban, essentially, in 2020. And yet now we do see a bunch of blocking of foreign sites, slowing down access to websites. And so it does seem, even if a little bit, that the Kremlin has improved those filtering capabilities. The other big thing to watch is Putin's rhetoric. Just last week, for example, Russia's internet censor said that YouTube was a tool of Western information warfare against Russia. And so the fact that the state is getting more escalatory in its language also suggests that these tech actions are angering the Kremlin and that there may be more and more crackdowns than we've ever seen in the coming months.
1: I was going to ask you about that comment because when we spoke to our colleague, she talked about trying you know, to get news on YouTube from various journalists and to get, you know, different sites through VPNs or by using Telegram. And I wonder if you think that people's ability to access information is going to be severely limited in the coming weeks.
0: I think it will be limited. And there's the direct reason for that, which is if the state successfully blocks and filters things. But there's also the indirect reason, which is where does that push Russian citizens after that? Where else can they go to communicate? And the answer with all of these companies pulling services, blocking apps, the state blocking websites, is that they're going to be relying on domestic platforms. And it's not as if every single post on those platforms goes into some massive state database, but domestic websites like VK are far more censored and far more surveilled than anything the West is providing to Russia. And so that really increases these risks to everyday Russians.
1: Do you think we might be moving toward something that looks like a Chinese Great Firewall, or is it a a very different tactic from the Russians?
0: We could be moving to more filtering, but the Russian internet control model has for a while relied on far less blocking than in China, right? China has a really sophisticated data filtering apparatus um, on its gateways and in the country. The Russian internet control model instead relies on a lot of traditional coercion. This is things like law enforcement harassing you, intelligence services following people at tech companies. This is things like really, really confusing and inconsistently enforced speech laws. And the point is very much so that citizens think about posting something and say, well, so-and-so got arrested for posting that. So-and-so didn't. Maybe I shouldn't post it. It's that kind of hesitance. It's that kind of fear injection that the Kremlin knowingly uses to shape the, the internet environment within the country.
1: When we spoke to our colleague earlier um she talked about seeing this array of posts on her social media, particularly on Facebook, right after the invasion began. But also about that fear of people not knowing what would be kind of potentially against the law and and what might not. Um, is the fear, maybe this is naive to ask, but I guess is the fear the point?
0: The fear is the point. Masha Gessen, who's one of my favorite writers and thinkers on on Russian politics, said this recently, which is that you can't talk about censorship in Russia, whether that's a newspaper or social media, without talking, is the way they put it, about the economy of fear. And that worry, that fear about getting arrested, that fear of being separated from your family, of getting beat up at a protest, all of those risks are part of this internet control model, whether or not we we think of it that way. And even in recent weeks, the Russian government has introduced new punishments for people sharing information about the war. It released a directive last week telling citizens not to share anything about Russian forces killing Ukrainian civilians and not to share anything about Russian troop casualties. So all of these these things are in flux and it's it's a really you know scary environment to be living in in russia
1: there's this sort of weird dark parallel here right at a time when prior to the invasion there was so much criticism of tech giants and big tech companies for basically turning this idealistic internet project into a big money-making corporate venture. And now seeing these Russian moves, it's like, wait, 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 no, freedom, exchange of ideas, please come back. Like, I I don't know how to reconcile those things together.
0: It's very complicated. These companies, in some cases, like restricting Russia today in Russia, are making good decisions to try and limit the spread of state propaganda at the same time these moves also align with profit incentives it's convenient for them to signal to the west that they are not you know supporting the putin regime it's good for them and in some cases necessary to comply with the spirit as well as the letter of various sanctions and even infrastructure providers like aws uh, as part of amazon discontinuing cloud service to new clients in Russia of Lumen, a back-end provider pulling out of the country. All of these different moves sound good on paper, but they do, uh, you know, have various contradictions and they come with possible costs in the long term to Russian citizens' internet access and to maybe even helping along this Russian project to have a domestic Russian internet.
1: Yeah, I mean, is the early aughts dream of a open internet that connects us all just sounding even more silly in the face of all of this
0: i don't think it it sounds silly i think in a weird way russia's troop buildup and disinformation and now second illegal invasion of ukraine has had such a strong internet element we've seen so much information coming out of ukraine by people posting online we've seen unprecedented action, quite literally, by foreign governments all at once, real time, disclosing Russian uh, covert action and other things. And so there really is a strong internet theme with all of that. But to your point, you know, it might not be silly to believe in a global internet, but it's silly to think that these companies have all the right incentives. And it's silly to think that other governments are not aggressively trying to undercut the global web as we know
1: it. Justin Sherman, thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Justin Sherman is a fellow at the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative. Nyana Peshaiva is a journalist in Moscow. That is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. And TBD is part of the larger What Next family. We're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And I want to recommend that you listen to Thursday's episode of What Next? It's an interview with a journalist in Ukraine about what he's witnessing and why he's doing it. We'll be back in your feed on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.